Hello and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where someone, somewhere, knows the truth. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. You told me Robert Stack was going to be my co-host. Sorry, were you not impressed by my Robert Stack impression? I've seen two episodes of Unsolved Mysteries in my life. <laughs> this boggles my mind. What did you watch as a child? Um, Beverly Hillbillies a lot. Um, a lot of Three's <laughs> Company. A lot of Three's Company. Oh, were you a Nick at Night kid? Oh, yes. Uh, a lot of... See, I didn't have cable growing up, so not a possibility. A lot of Gilligan's Island. Yeah, n- n- none of that. Uh, big, big Nick at Night. Um, kid. So that's where my sense of humor comes from. <laughs> this explains a lot, doesn't it? Man, I was devastated when they stopped showing reruns of Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, the cartoon. I that's do not remember Nick that. And, yeah, that's not. Yeah, they're not a Nick and Night thing. It's but, not uh, Nick and Night, but it, it was also explains on my list. a lot about you as a person. <laughs> we were watching Liar Liar the other night, and oh, <laughs> I hadn't watched it in a long time, and I was like, wow, a lot of stuff makes sense. <laughs> So I was talking to Sadie, and she was talking about how, like, the cheaper by the dozen, like, she's probably going to watch it. I'm like, I, I can't. Uh, I can't do family. Like, my family film genre is divorced parents. <laughs> so, yeah, like a Mrs. Doubtfire. Like a Mrs. Liar, Doubtfire, liar, liar. Um, I guess Jumanji, that's dead parents, but still. Fair, yeah. Anyway, uh, our topic today has absolutely nothing to do with any of those things. It's it's in the title of the episode. So, um, welcome back. Thank you for you know, bearing with us through our absence. It's been a couple of days, you guys. I did appreciate the long break. I'm very excited to be back. Um, I missed it. I missed uh, just Googling things for hours on end, Um, which I did anyways, but you know. Never in. When you just Google things for fun, you don't tend to go down the same kind of rabbit holes you do when you're researching a thing. Because at some point, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, mostly what I've been doing is is Googling the um, plot summary of the movie that we're currently watching, which has been fun. I've mostly just been playing Stardew Valley and puzzles. Oh, that's fun. I oh, did fun. a lot of puzzles. Um, so today, we are going to present to you for your consideration. I watched a lot of Twilight Zone. Um, submitted for your consideration are two unsolved mysteries. I don't know what Sarah's is. Sarah doesn't know what mine... Well... I think you you've sh- told me the name of it, but I don't think I'm familiar with it. I go might ahead. be, but who knows? You might be familiar with mine too, for all I know. Why don't you go first? Okay, I'll do that. So you don't feel rushed because I um fell down the rabbit hole as it is. Yeah. What did we decide? Like three to four pages. We'll make it easier on ourselves. <laughs> first episode back. Neither of us have a lot of time right now, so we'll, you know we'll do an easy one. And then you wrote six pages anyway. Well, no, I wrote eight pages and then I edited it down to six pages. It's Well, you tried. You will know why when I tell you the story. Well, I am looking forward to that. Uh, In the meantime, um, I'm going to talk about my favorite unsolved mystery. Where is the Amber Room? And also, how on earth did we manage to lose an entire room? I have no idea what this is. I'm so excited. Really? Oh, Oh, I'm so excited now. This this mystery has everything, Emily. It has Russians, Nazis, gold, 
I did think you were going to stop after Russians and Nazis. I couldn't think on my feet fast enough. I am out of practice. It makes for a great Indiana Jones movie, but not so much. Uh, so my sources for this real quick, uh, Wikipedia, Smithsonian Mag, History.co.uk, which is just, as far as I can tell, the British version of the History Channel, uh, BBC, and Live Science, as per usual. You know, the, the, all the big ones. The usual suspects, yes. Yeah. So... The Amber Room, for those of you who have not already exhausted the supply of historical mystery content on the internet, as I have, was a series of jewel-encrusted amber wall panels gifted to Peter the Great of Russia by King Friedrich I of Prussia. So it's it's gemstone wallpaper. Essentially, yes. Okay. Uh, rich people. <laughs> so construction on the Amber Room began in 1701 when the room was first installed at the Charlottenburg Palace in Prussia which is modern day Germany. I'm not sure exactly. I didn't look up where this was. This could be part of like Russia now, but somewhere over there. You know where Prussia was. <laughs> it was designed by German Baroque sculptor Andreas Schulter and constructed by Danish amber craftsman Gottfried Wolfram. Good names. Strong names. So the use of amber, which is fossilized tree resin, watch a Jurassic Park movie, <laughs> For interior decoration was an entirely new concept at the time, but one that would prove to be incredibly beautiful and impressive. So the amber was heated, dipped into an, an infusion of honey and linseed, and then it was worked onto panels of wood covered in gold or silver leaf and then decorated with precious jewels. So it created this like really pretty, like luminous effect, almost like it kind of glowed. And then, you know, it was full of shiny things. Goddamn rich people. I will show, uh -huh, I will send you a picture here. And, of course, we will post these on the Instagram as well. I can't type. They do have pictures of it. Oh, good. So we know what it looks like. So we're not just looking for the concept. So very pretty. Ooh. Ooh. Yes. Uh, so after the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, um, expressed his admiration for the room on an, uh, on an official visit, uh, the King of Prussia decided to bestow the room upon him as a gift, uh, a very generous gift with a very uh, notable ulterior motive, which is he wanted to cement their alliance uh, that they had just formed against Sweden. Better a bunch of amber than his daughter? Yeah. Yeah, I'll it's take just it. Just how they, they usually <laughs> dealt with that, so. Like, yeah, give him a bunch of money and not, like, a person. That'd be great. <laughs> Here, have this human woman. Uh, the panels were then shipped to St. Petersburg in 18 large boxes and installed in the Winter House. And it stayed there until 1755 when Tsarina Elizabeth, who was the predecessor to uh, Catherine the Great, or, well, predecessor to, you know, Catherine's husband. Well, yeah, briefly, we know how that and went. And then Catherine. Go listen to the episode. <laughs> Watch the show. Uh, so she moved it to the Catherine Palace, which is just south of the city. Um, so, and they also had moved it into a larger space. So she brought in another Italian designer named Bartol, 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 I can't wrap Do you want to text me the name? Bartolomeo. Sure. I don't know if I am hitting the right accents on that. Rastrelli. Um, he was a very Italian man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she brought him in to design and construct more panels with more amber that had been shipped from Berlin. So once the renovations were finished, the room covered 180 square feet and contained a full six tons of amber and other precious stones. I don't understand how the walls could handle the weight. I imagine lots of uh, screws. I don't know. <laughs> what do they use in those days? Glue? Yes. <laughs> Elmer's. Uh, so along with like the amber on the walls, there were like other amber, amber like figurines and sculptures. 
candelabras, mosaics, gilded figurines, like a lot of like just really bougie, rich stuff. <laughs> rich people shit, yeah. And the effect was so awe-inspiring that it was dubbed the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, today, historians estimate that the room would have been worth about like $142 million in today's money. Jesus. Yeah, and like the walls. The walls were worth that much. <laughs> God. My next section is titled, In Which the Nazis Ruin Everything Again. Yeah, they are historically known for doing that. So the Amber Room remained in place at the Catherine Palace until 1941, when, in June of that year, Adolf Hitler launched Arp Operation Barbarossa, and three million German soldiers invaded the Soviet Union. Something, something, Pirates of the Caribbean joke? I don't know. Pirates of the Caribbean? Oh, Barbarossa. Barbosa. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Almost there. Couple extra syllables. That's why it was almost a Pirates of the Caribbean joke. (laughs) You tried. (laughs) As the Nazis made their way into Russia, they looted tens of thousands of art treasures, um, just as they did throughout most of Europe. That was kind of just their thing. Yep. The Amber Room, though, was a particular target for Hitler because it had been made by Germans and thus, by Hitler logic, was really, you know, their Amber Room. They were just taking it back. He's Austrian. He was from Austria? Mm. So the curators at the Catherine Palace, being completely aware of this, they did their best to try and disassemble the room so they could hide it. But after like two centuries, the amber panels were so like dry and brittle that when they took them down, they just like started to crumble. So instead, what they tried to do was like just wallpaper over it, (laughs) essentially. Yeah. And hope no one would notice, uh, which did not work. Yeah, I feel like they'd notice. The Nazis did eventually gain control of the Catherine Palace. And once they had found the panels, uh, they did manage to tear it down within 36 hours. Probably not very carefully. No. Um, And then they packed it up into 27 crates and shipped the whole thing to Konigsberg Castle, which at the time was a German outpost. It's now the city of Kaliningrad. Where is that? Russia. Mm, Okay. Modern day Russia, not like then day Russia. I was curious if it was the the castle that Indiana Jones rescued his father from when he was fighting the Nazis, but um, could have know. been. No, I think that was in. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I think it was in um, um, closer to Germany. Do you know how like, long it's been since I've seen an Indiana Jones movie? It's been approximately six months since I've seen an Indiana Jones movie. So this makes sense. <laughs> It's an annual thing. (laughs) Uh, The Amber Room remained on display there for at least two years, but as the tide began to turn against the Nazis, the room was again packed into crates uh, sometime, we think, in 1943. In August of 1944, Allied bombing raids leveled the city and the castle and uh, collapsed it all into ruins. Mm. And whatever happened to the Amber Room after that, no one really knows. Herein lies the mystery. It's probably several crates of gravel. That is entirely possible. Uh, There are some theories. Um, So one of the most ridiculous, and therefore my favorite, is that the Nazis never actually stole the Amber Room. What they had done was been, or they had been tricked into stealing a fake Amber Room. Like Stalin was playing some 4D chess, and he had installed a fake Amber Room and then hidden the real Amber Room away. So disregarding the question of where or how you afford a whole second Amber Room in the middle of wartime, uh, it does seem unlikely given that the Soviet Union never managed to, you know, heroically resurface the Amber Room at any point between World War II and, you know, its eventual collapse. Yeah, that seems like something that you pull out and be like, JK, as soon as Hitler dies. 
Yeah, like, can you believe it? You know, we we stumbled upon this amazing historical find, and now we can restore Russia. Yeah, no. Uh, so, the, like I said, yeah, the Amber Room, it's still very much a point of pride in Russia. Like, they actually did after the war. Um, starting in the 70s, they spent 25 years and $11 million on a very elaborate reconstruction of the Amber Room. Um, and that's actually been on display since 2003. I don't think it's actually made with much amber. I think it's not necessarily as fancy, but it's like, it's something you can go and look at. I'm sure it's very pretty. I just, it's, it, that's impressive. Um, I'm not going to take that away from them. It's not the same. No. So I feel like you don't get to brag about the original one if you lost it. Well, they didn't lose it. It got stolen from them. And then the Nazis lost it. Okay. To be fair. I don't know how you lose an entire room, but... <laughs> if, if you want to go really galaxy brain on this, like, maybe they hid it away, and then the reconstruction was just a front for them to put it up again. But then, like, why? 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 That's Yeah, that feels like a better narrative that, like, you would have found it. And yeah, I don't know. Probably not. We're going to say no. Yeah. So the other kind of major theory is that the Nazis spirited the Amber Room out of Konigsberg at some point between, you know, packing it up and the bombing. Um, so in 1997, um, there was a group of, ger- group of German architectives, which is probably the coolest job ever. Mm, it's up there. <laughs> they tracked down a supposed piece of one of the room's Italian mosaics, the ones that they had kind of been added after the mm-hmm. fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so the seller was the son of the deceased German soldier. He didn't really know exactly how his father had gotten his hands on a panel. It is believed that he probably stole it <laughs> when the chamber was being packed up and shipped from Russia. But Sarah, Nazis are honorable people and they would <laughs> never steal. To be fair, I don't blame him. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool. Right, that's the, the one thing you can sympathize with the Nazi on. I'm not going to allow anything else. <laughs> So others believe that the Amber Room could have been loaded onto a German ship in the waning days of the war and is now sitting somewhere at the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Somehow that feels like the best place for it at this point. Maybe. (laughs) So some eyewitnesses claim that the Amber Room had been brought on board a German transport ship called the Wilhelm Gustla, uh, which was sunk in January 45 by a Soviet submarine. Um, divers have searched this wreckage quite a few times. They've never found anything linked to the Amber Room, anything that would hint that the Amber Room is actually there. More recently, just in October 2020, Polish divers discovered another shipwreck onto the Baltic Sea called the SS Karul. Karl's Rule. Uh, I can't pronounce it. <laughs> Karl's Rule, Frederick's Rule. Yeah, you know. There are no historical reports, like, unlike. You know, the Wilhelm Gustav had, like, eyewitness people saying that they saw it being loaded. Mm-hmm. There's no, like, witness reports that would suggest that it had ever been on there. But it's not not possible. So, like, it was the last German ship to kind of leave the city of Konigsberg. So if they did intend on smuggling the Amber Room out of the city, like, that would have been their last chance to do so. So, like, it's not impossible. But there's also nothing to suggest that this is true. Do you think there's a Russian language version of Titanic where their version of James Cameron is looking for the Amber Room and like there's an old lady who pushed a, the crate over the side of the boat and then she tells this whole long story and I hope so. <laughs> Let's write that movie. There was room for two on the Amber panel. <laughs> so the wreck itself is relatively in- intact. The divers have spotted military vehicles and crates. 
Uh, whether or not the Amber Room is packed inside those crates uh, remains to be seen, as no one has actually yet made an attempt to bring them up from, you know, under the sea. Does Amber float? No, I think it would probably be too heavy. Yeah, the only Amber I've ever been in possession was was literally a petrified mosquito in a piece of Amber. Oh, no, it was an ant. Sorry, I didn't have the yeah. full Jurassic Park experience. It was a, <laughs> It was an ant in a piece of Amber. Uh, there are some theories that the Amber Room could be hidden elsewhere. Um, possibly buried under the city of Koningsberg, now Kaliningrad. Um, Others have made claims that the Amber Room has been stored deep inside a series of salt mines on the Czech border or possibly sunk in a Lithuanian lagoon. God damn it, I want this movie so bad. <laughs> uh, these, they're, It's not entirely out of left field. Like, the Nazi regime did, like, hide a lot of their stolen treasures in really kind of, like, weird places. Um, but, like, they've searched kind of these places and nothing has ever really turned up. Uh, the most commonly accepted theory, as depressing that it is, it probably is the most likely, um, is that the Amber Room was destroyed in the bombing of Konigsberg and will never actually be found. Um, I have some news. According to um, this article titled How to Test Amber from a website called naturalbalticamber.com, Amber will float on cold seawater or in a glass of water saturated with salt. Some plastics will also float under the same conditions. Amber floats on salt water. But does it float when it's been locked in a crate? Uh, I'm assuming this is to test jewelry, so I don't think they have the answer to that. (laughs) Probably not. Uh, Yeah, it's probably gravel by now. Like, it's very sad, but... Yeah, and this is also backed by... So, after the war, the Soviets sent this guy. um, His name was Alexander Brusov. He was a professor. They sent him to recover the Anvil Room and other, like, just other stolen Russian artifacts. The Nazis stole a lot of shit. Um, Yep. (laughs) In the cellar of the castle in Konigsberg, Brusov reportedly discovered the burnt remains of three of the four Italian mosaics, not the one that had been stolen, but the other three um, that had been included in the Amber Room. His official report states... Summarizing all the facts, we can say that the Amber Room was destroyed between 9 and 11, April 1945. Um, And even if the Amber Room had managed to survive to the present day, it's very unlikely it could ever be restored to its former glory. It's As a material, it's very fragile. It would require a museum environment. It's been moved a lot as well. Yeah. And not... It's not like diamonds. It's not like a hard substance. It's very fragile and brittle and just... It's sad, but... Sometimes not everything can last forever. I don't know. It's very special for the people who got to see it. Yeah, I'm sure it was very beautiful. I love the idea that someone will like open up a crate and find the amber room in it at some point, but I just don't think it's very likely. I, I am picturing like a, a Fantastic Beast suitcase esque, like they open the crate <laughs> and there's a whole fucking room at the bottom of it. Or like just like the briefcase from Pulp Fiction where you just yeah. open it up and it glows. <laughs> That's what was in it. That's what was in it. We solved two mysteries today. (laughs) That is the story of the Amber Room. Uh, Yeah, I had never heard of that before. Um, That's exciting. Mm -hmm. It does have everything. Okay. Today I'm going to present to you a story that is very recently very special to my heart because I hadn't heard about it until like two weeks ago. Um, So yes, my favorite unsolved mystery is new to me. Because my other favorite unsolved mysteries are ones like the identities of um, Lori Ruff and Lyle Stevick, and those have been solved. So, I mean, they were unsolved at some point. They were unsolved at some point. They were unsolved when I... could say that for a lot of crimes. <laughs> yeah. So this is the story of the murder in room 1046, because Sarah would have killed me if I did the stand-down clown. 
Yeah, I don't know what that is, but I don't want to hear about it. I sent you that picture when you were um, thinking of of scary stories to tell your niece, and you rejected it wholeheartedly. (laughs) Um, I will do a mini on the Sandown Clown, because um, as far as, like... Is it a cryptid? Uh, I just saw the picture. I didn't read, like, anything about it. Yes, it's a cryptid alien, like, high strangeness, like, terror in the space-time continuum. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. Uh, I wouldn't say it's scary, but I'll I'll give him a mini. I promise to try to keep this on the shorter side, but um, I do encourage you guys to to check it out on your own because there's a lot of stuff that I, I actually did have to cut out because it's um, much broader than I initially thought. Interesting. Um, it's the story of a murder, as I said, and um, personally, I found it refreshing because I have been reading American Psycho, and that is very brutal, and this is like a fun, old-timey murder. Oh, I love old... Love old-timey murders. It happened in the 30s, so there's less at stake. (laughs) All right. Are you ready? I am so ready. On the afternoon of January 2nd, 1935, a man checked into the President Hotel in downtown Kansas City, Missouri, the premier spot for fuck all because it's Kansas City. (laughs) A few days later, at around 10.30 a.m. on January 4th, The man was found bloody and naked laying on the floor of his hotel room, which had been locked from the outside. (gasps) Is this a locked room mystery? Uh Uh-huh. He was conscious when they found him and claimed that he had fallen and hit his head on the tub. Hitting? I don't know why. (laughs) Hit his head on the tub. He hoting his head on the tub? The multiple stab wounds, bound wrists, (laughs) bruises on his neck, and blood on the walls, bed, floor, and ceiling told a different story. Um, mm, I don't know. What the story is, we'll never fully know because the man slipped into a coma upon arriving at the hospital and died shortly after midnight on January 5th. Who killed this man? Why? How? When? Ghosts. Who? I said who. Ghosts. This immediately gave me a 1408 vibe, which is one of my um, favorite John Cusack films. (laughs) It's like high fidelity and 1408. (laughs) All right, strap in, nerds. I have details. Oh, boy. So, as previously mentioned, a man walked into the President Hotel on January 2nd, 1935. The man was described as being in his early 20s, husky, with dark hair, a large scar on the side of his head, and a case of cauliflower ear. Which, if you're wondering, and are too scared to Google it like I was up until this point... It's like a wrestling thing, isn't it? Yeah, cauliflower ear is when you get hit really hard in the ear and a blood clot forms and causes the ear to swell and deform. Ouch. Into the uh, shape of a, like, people say it looks like a cauliflower. It just looks like a fucked yeah, up ear to me. But what do I know? The name, yeah. So indicative of someone who's been in a fight, possibly, yes. maybe. It's it's commonly thought of as a boxer or wrestler's injury because, right. yeah. like, back in those days, they didn't have the, like, little foam hats they put on boxers. No, like, protective equipment. Just kind of your skull and, you know, good luck. Your ears are just out there for the world to punch. <laughs> Uh, So the man asked for a room on a higher floor, facing the courtyard instead of the street. He had no luggage and signed the register as Roland T. Owens of Los Angeles. He paid for one night and was escorted up to his room by a bellboy named Randolph Probst. Probst? Whatever. Probst? I think it's Probst, like the guy who does Survivor. Oh, yeah. Jeff. Jeff Probst. I hate that I know that. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking the other day, like... Everyone is real mad, rightfully so, at Joe Rogan. And, like, this is a man who was 
giving people money to eat bugs on TV 20 years ago. Like, why are we taking him seriously? Yeah, I forget that he was on Fear Factor. Is that how he got famous? Like, is that his thing? Yeah. I don't care to know more than that about Joe Rogan, to be honest. Yeah, he was a reality show host. We shouldn't listen to him. Anyways, um, so Owen told Randolph, that he had originally wanted to check into the Muhlenbach Hotel, but was put off by the high price of $5 a night. <sighs> Those were the days. Right. Um, when they reached room 1046, Randolph let him in. Um, Owen went to the bathroom and took out a comb, brush, and toothpaste of, out of his coat pocket and placed them on the sink. Then they went back out into the hall where the bellboy locked the door, gave Owen the key, and Owen left the hotel. Okay. That afternoon... A maid went to clean room 1046. Owen let her in and then put his coat on to leave, telling her to leave the door unlocked as he was expecting someone soon. The maid noticed that the blinds were all drawn and only one lamp was on. She later told police that Owen seemed nervous or afraid. At around 4 p.m., she returned with clean towels. The door was still unlocked and the room was mostly dark. Owen was lying on the bed, fully dressed. A note on the desk read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. Don, D-O-N? Yes. The next information on his movement wasn't until 10.30 the next morning. The maid again came to clean the room, unlocking it with her passkey, which is, you know, skeleton key. Mm -hmm. But this only worked when the door was locked from the outside. When she entered, she found Owen sitting in the dark, silently. The phone rang, and he picked up. After a moment of listening, he said, No, Dawn, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. After he hung up, for some reason he began interrogating the maid about the President Hotel and her duties there. He repeated his complaint about the high rates of the Muhlenbach. The maid finished and got the fuck out. Sometimes you wonder, like, how people remember all this in such great detail, but I think if I was, like, having to encounter this weirdo again and again, I probably would remember it very well, too. I would literally never forget. Yeah. That afternoon, she again went up to the room with clean towels. Outside the door, she heard two men talking. She knocked and explained why she was there. An unfamiliar voice responded gruffly that they didn't need any towels. And this was weird because she'd taken the towels earlier, so there were no towels in the room. (laughs) So they definitely needed towels. They just maybe didn't need towels. Yeah. They didn't need to be interrupted with towels. Yeah, the towels could wait. They'll call the front desk. Um, So that wasn't the only weird shit afoot in the area that day. Uh, So later that day, a woman named Jean Owen, no relation, registered at the president. She was given room 1048, and she did not have a peaceful night. Because of the ghosts? Yes. Uh, She was continually bothered by the loud sounds of at least male and female voices arguing violently in the adjoining room. Mrs. Owen later heard a scuffle and a, quote, gasping sound, which at the time she assumed was snoring. She debated calling the front desk, but decided against it. So, you know, that was weird. Yeah. That's definitely something, like, I would be weirded out. I also probably wouldn't call the front desk because I wouldn't want to be that person. Yeah. I always feel like the person would know it was me. Like, it's weird. Yeah. Anyway, anxiety. That's fun. Huzzah! Um, (laughs) uh, So then, Charles Blocker, the graveyard shift elevator operator at the hotel, also noticed unusual activity. There was what he assumed was a particularly noisy party in room 1055. And sometime after midnight, he took a woman to the 10th floor. She was looking for room 1026. He had seen her around the president numerous times, and the assumption was that she was a sex worker, or how they put it in the article I was reading, a uh, commercial woman. <laughs> like commercial real estate? Real estate? Yes. A few minutes later, he was signaled to return to the 10th floor. 
The woman was concerned because the man who had arranged to meet her there was nowhere to be found. Unable to help her, Blocker went back downstairs. About half an hour later, the woman summoned the elevator again to take her down to the lobby. And about half an hour after that, she returned to the elevator with a man. Blocker took them to the ninth floor, and around 4 a.m., the woman left the hotel, followed about 15 minutes later by the man. The couple was never identified, and it is unknown if they had anything to do with Owen and room 1046. But that is fucking weird. (laughs) I mean, it is a hotel. I feel like just weird shit goes down in hotels all the time. Oh, no, they're all haunted. That's what they're for. (laughs) Um, So at about 11 p.m. on that same night, a city worker named Robert Lane was driving on a downtown street when he saw a man running down the sidewalk. He was puzzled to see that on this January night, the man was wearing only pants and an undershirt. Burr. Yes. In uh, Kansas City, no less. I hear it gets cold there. Um, The man waved Lane down thinking he was a cab. And when he saw his mistake, he apologized and asked if Lane could take him someplace where he could get a cab. Uh, Lane agreed and commented to his passenger, you look as if you've been in it bad. The man nodded and said, I'll kill that expletive that I could not find uh, tomorrow. Okay. I would assume fucker. Yep. Bastard, maybe. Uh, Lane noticed his passenger had a scratch on his arm and potentially a bigger arm wound that he had his hand over. When they reached their destination, the man thanked Lane and then exited the car, found an empty cab, and honked the horn to call the driver out from a nearby restaurant. Just get in the car, an unlocked car, in the middle of the street and wait for the cabbie to come. That's the 30s, No, he reached his hand, like, through the the, um, driver door and, like, honked the horn until he came out. I was picturing him getting in the back seat and then, like, leaning over. Yeah. (laughs) Just sitting quietly. Um, So on January 4th at 7 a.m., the switchboard operator for the hotel attempted to make a requested wake-up call to room 1046. She noticed a light indicating that the phone was off the hook. Uh, Probst, remember Randy? Randy Probst? Mm -hmm. He was on shift again and headed up to check on the phone situation. The door to room 1046 was locked with a do not disturb sign hanging from the doorknob. After knocking, a voice from the inside told him to enter, but this was impossible as the door was locked. The same voice told him, after another knock, to turn on the lights. Finally, Probst just shouted through the door to hang up the phone and left. (laughs) This kid, like, has better things to do with his time. Uh, At 8.30, the phone was still off the hook. Another bellboy was sent to deal with it. The do not disturb sign was still on the door. It was still locked, so he used a passkey to let himself in. Inside, he found Owen, in the dark, lying on the bed, naked, and apparently drunk. Not dead yet. Not dead yet. The light from the hallway showed some dark spots on the bedding, but the bellboy just went over to the phone stand, hung up the phone, and left. Uh, he did note that it looked like the phone had been knocked over. As in, as if in a scuffle. Yes. Just after 10.30, the phone was off the hook again. Jesus. <gasps> Probst headed up again and found the do not disturb sign still up. This time he used his passkey after no one answered his knocks and found Owen on his knees and elbows, two feet away from the door, naked, with his head bloodied. Oof. Probes turned on the light and put the phone back on the hook and then noticed blood on the walls of both the main room and the bathroom as well on the, as on the bed itself. Uh, Probes went downstairs for help. He returned with the assistant manager, but when they did, they could not open the door more than a crack as Owen had fallen on the floor about two inches from the door. <laughs> oh, dear. Eventually, he got up and when the hotel employees were able to enter, he went and sat on the edge of the bathtub. The manager called the police, and they were also joined by Dr. Harold Flanders of Kansas City General Hospital. Kansas City General is the most boring of all the sexy doctor shows. (laughs) Owen had been bound with cord around his neck, wrists, and ankles. 
His neck had further bruising, suggesting someone had attempted to strangle him. This guy's had a bad night. Mm. He had been stabbed more than once in the chest above the heart, and one of these wounds had punctured his lung. Blows to the head had left him with a skull fracture on the right side. In addition to the blood probes had seen, there was also some additional spatter on the ceiling. Jesus. It's not good. This makes me think of, you may have heard this story, but um, you mentioned the woman, like, heard, like, a kind of a gasping sound during the middle of the night. Yes. It makes me think of when Peter Jackson, during the filming of The Lord of the Rings, was trying to direct Christopher Lee as to, like, how he should react after getting stabbed. And he, mm-hmm. Christopher was like, no, 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 that's not what happens when you get stabbed. This is what happens when you get stabbed. He's, <laughs> like, not screaming. It's, like, <gasps> a gasp. It's, like, losing your breath. Christopher, Christopher how do you know that? <laughs> he was uh, Secret Service during World War II. That's how he knew that. <laughs> you know, it's kind of weird how you think about how, like, Christopher Lee and Julia Child and <laughs> these people. Uh, all right. So when questioned about what had happened, the semi-conscious Owen only muttered, I fell against the bathtub. Sure, Jane. Sure. <laughs> the doctor asked if he had been trying to kill himself. After saying no, Owen lost consciousness and was taken to the hospital. He was completely comatose by the time he arrived and died shortly after midnight on January 5th. Doctors performed an autopsy and determined he had died from his wounds. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, see where they stabbed him? It was that. Yeah, you see that big head wound? Probably. Probably had something to do with it. It may have been a contributing factor. Ugh, that's a rough way to go. Thanks, Harold. Dr. Flanders had examined not just the body, but the bloodstains in the room. Since much of it had dried by the time he arrived, he estimated that the wounds had been inflicted between 4 and 5 a.m. that day, consistent with other reports of his activity. So it's kind of assumed that when that earlier bad boy came in to put the phone back on the hook, he had probably been stabbed at that point. He just hadn't seen yes. it. Yeah. Yes. Um, it's, it's consistent with the, you know, remember the man that was driving the car? Mm-hmm. That was about the time that he picked up, you know, an injured man. Right. Uh, so like shortly after that. Um, so when the police searched the room, things got weirder. Weirder already? Weirder already. There were no knives, which led to the dismissal of suicide as the cause, because okay. no knives. You can't hide your own murder weapon. Yes. Very well. You can try. Um, and the cords, you know, that had tied him up also suggested the involvement of others, obviously. Fair point. Good detective work, everybody. One of the room's two glasses was found in the sink, missing a piece, and the other was on the shelf. Hmm. Detectives found some other items that might have been evidence. A hairpin, a safety pin, an unsmoked cigarette, and a full bottle of diluted sulfuric acid. Oh, you don't bring a diluted bottle of sulfuric acid every time you go and stay in a hotel? I actually meant to, like, look and see if that was something that... Like they used in old timey times to do something, but yeah, like I almost wonder if that maybe not like rubbing alcohol, but I think of something like that where it's like something chemically that does have a purpose, especially if it's diluted, but that doesn't necessarily wouldn't be as weird as we would think of like who's going to carry around sulfuric acid today. Yeah, as far as I can tell, it's mostly used in like fertilizers and stuff. Okay, interesting. Um, let me just scroll through the Wikipedia for a second. A lot of chemistry here. Ugh, too much. Yep. Any chemistry is too much chemistry. Yeah, after... Oh, history? History. Uh, no, man, this is not... It was not used for anything that, like, some, you know, young man would have a use for in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. So, weird, right? Very weird. Yeah. Uh, four fingerprints, small enough that detectives believe they had belonged to a woman, were found on the room's phone. 
and they could not be matched to um, Owen or any of the hotel employees that have been known to have entered the room. A hotel employee reported that several hours before Owen was found, he had seen a man and a woman leave the president hurriedly. There was no doubt, in the words of one of the detectives, someone else was mixed up in this. I don't... I wouldn't rule out that possibility because they did kind of witness a man and a woman leaving, but also, like, it's a hotel. When were those fingerprints made? It was really early in the morning. Yeah, but uh, no, I'm talking about the fingerprints on the phone. Like, you can't necessarily place them in the room just because there were maybe a woman's fingerprints yeah on the i don't phone, think like, they were wiping down the phone between each, no, each they person. probably were not cleaning that well so officers in kansas city contacted the los angeles police department to notify next of kin but they were informed that they could find no record of anyone under the name roland owen that was living in california at the time <gasps> secret identity the dead man's fingerprints were sent to what was at the time the justice bureau the 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 what was at the time the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, later the FBI. Right. A woman called the uh, President Hotel that night to ask what Roland T. Owen looked like. She told the desk that he lived in Clinton, 50 miles southeast of Kansas City. On January 6th, the Sunday newspapers reported the man in 1046 had died under assumed name and tips began coming in. Members of the public went to the local funeral home where he had been laid out, leading Lane, the man who had been driving the car, to tell police of his encounter with the man. After interviewing Lane, they were not certain that Owen had been the man that Lane saw, since none of the hotel staff had reported seeing him leave or return during the night of January 3rd to 4th. So the timeline matched up, but it also didn't. Mm-hmm. Police were able to establish one sighting of Owen outside the hotel, a report that he had been seen with two women at several, quote, liquor places <gasps> on 12th Street. Scandalous. I think that's just bars? This was, I mean, this was during Prohibition. Oh. So that might, I mean, there's an angle. Oh, and he was drunk in his hotel room. Oh. Anyway, completely forgot about Prohibition. (laughs) Me too. Some stuff makes sense now. Um, Officers recalled Probst's account that on his way there after he checked in, the man had said that he had left the nearby Muhlenbach Hotel after one night due to the high rate. And they checked with the hotel staff. No Roland T. Owen had checked in there, but staff recalled a man of Owen's appearance checking in under the name Eugene K. Scott, also giving Los Angeles as his address uh, and requesting a room on the interior of the building. Again, after investigating, the LAPD reported there was no one by that name in the city. A week into the investigation, Tony Bernardi, a wrestling promoter from Little Rock, Arkansas, said after viewing the body that the man, identifying himself as Cecil Werner, had approached him around the beginning of December 1934 about wrestling in some matches. How many names has this guy gone by? (laughs) A lot. Uh, Bernardi had referred him to another promoter in Omaha, Nebraska, but that promoter did not recognize Owen. On March 3rd, when the funeral home where the body had been kept announced it would be burying the man in the city's potter's field the next day, The funeral home received a call from a man who asked that the funeral be delayed so they could send money for a grave and service at Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City. So, the caller said, the dead man would be near his sister. The funeral director warned the caller that he'd have to tell the police about the call, and the caller said he knew and it didn't bother him. So much stuff going on. I'm, yeah, I'm interested to, I don't know, maybe you touched on this, but why they waited so long if they knew all right. It seems like they have known for a little bit, maybe. Who Who this body in the funeral home was. I honestly don't know. According to the caller, our man had an affair with one woman while engaged to marry another. 
The caller and the two women had apparently arranged the encounter with him at the president in order to exact revenge. Cheaters usually get what's coming to him, the caller said before hanging up. Damn. That's pretty cold. The service was postponed per the anonymous caller's request, and on March 23rd, the funeral home received a delivery envelope with $25, which is $500 in today money, uh, wrapped in newspaper, and it was enough to cover the expenses. Expenses. Uh, there was no return address. Hmm. Two additional envelopes with $5 each were sent to a local florist for an arrangement of 13 American Beauty roses to go with the grave. After a similar call was made to them, both phone calls turned out to have been made from pay phones. This is just everything that happens is so bizarre. <laughs> Included with this payment was a card with disguised handwriting reading, Love Forever, Louise. Besides the minister, the only attendees at the funeral were detectives, some of whom served as pallbearers. Other detectives posing as grave diggers stalked out the grave for the next several staked out Emily staked out the grave for the next several days, but no one came to visit. Assuming there was no name on the grave, they just kind of paid to have him buried. Yeah. Okay. Uh, several days after the funeral, a woman called the Kansas City Journal Post's newsroom to inform them that their earlier story that the dead man from room 1046 would be buried in the potter's field was incorrect, that he had in fact been given a formal funeral. She said the funeral home and the flower shop could verify this. When asked to identify herself, she said, never mind, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> when asked about what the fuck she meant, she responded, he got into a jam and hung up the phone. We're, we're coming to the the end where some questions will be answered, but See, not this really. Is so fr I get the impression this is one of those mysteries where people know it happened. They just aren't inclined to talk. No, that, yeah. I mean, someone somewhere knows something. <laughs> yeah. As the famous podcast will say, yes. So there were no movements in the case until late 1936 when, when a woman named Eleanor Ogletree learned of the murder in the magazine American Weekly. She thought the description of Owen matched that of her missing brother, Artemis. The Ogletrees hadn't seen him since he left home, uh, which was Birmingham, Alabama, in April of 1934 to, quote, see the country. What else are you going to do in the 30s, I guess? Not drink. Uh <laughs> <laughs> um, the last his mother, Ruby, had heard from him were three typewritten letters. The first of these arrived in the spring of 1935, several months after Owen had died. Mrs. Huh. Ogletree later said she was suspicious of these letters since her son did not know how to type. That, that is tricky. Yeah. Hmm. The last letter said he was sailing for Europe. Several months after the last letter, she received a phone call from a man calling himself Jordan, who told her that Artemis had saved his life in Egypt and that her son had married a wealthy Cairo woman. When Mrs. Ogletree was shown a photo of the John Doe known as Owen, she immediately recognized him as her missing son. Mm. He was only 17 when he died. Oh, Jesus. Yep. The baby, a tiny baby. A tiny little baby. Um, information from Ruby Ogletree helped them establish a third hotel in Kansas City, the St. Regis, where Artemis had stayed. There he had shared a room with another man, and whether that had been the Don from the phone call and the note mm -hmm. could not be established. In 1937, the New York City police arrested a man named Joseph Martin on a murder charge after he had killed a man he shared a room with and put the body in a trunk to be shipped to Memphis. Well, interesting. Uh, among the several aliases he was found to have used was Donald Kelso. Hmm. The Kansas City Police Department had matched samples of his handwriting to that in the letters written to Ruby Ogletree. For whatever fucking reason, no charges were filed against this man, 
for the Ogletree case, and the KCPD kept the case open. The files show that different detectives reviewed the case every few years through the 1950s, and each time they noted that they would keep the case open and follow up, but no new evidence was uncovered, and gradually the case went cold. Cut to 2013, not 2013, 2003. That's quite a time jump. John Horner, a local historian at the Kansas City Public Library, fielded a call from someone out of state who said they had been helping to inventory the belongings of an elderly person who had recently died. Among them was a shoebox, which turned out to be filled with newspaper clippings related to the case, as well as, according to them, one item mentioned in the newspaper stories. The caller identified neither themselves nor the item. Horner did not make this public until the conclusion of the second of two posts he made to the library's blog for telling the story in 2012. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yes, let's save this murder mystery for my blog. My library blog. My library blog. It was 2003. We could have traced the call. Anyway, that's all I have on the murder of Artemis Ogletree in room 1046. That's so frustrating. Man, I just, I love the story so much. And it's also going to haunt me. <laughs> it's just like there are just so many weird. That's yeah. You hear about like people get getting stuck on mysteries with so many bizarre, weird aspects to it. But this kind of takes the cake. This is exactly the kind of unsolved mystery that I like. <laughs> There's a murder or a a suicide, and there's just so many weird, random details. Like, some of them probably mean absolutely nothing. So much. Like, I think a lot, especially, like, the couple that was mentioned, like, they could have had fuck all to do with it for all we know. (laughs) Like, it's a hotel. Maybe there are just some other weird people there that night. But there are just so many places where it could have, like, someone could have figured it out. Like, if the lady in the room next to him had called downstairs. Yeah. Or just, like, if, like, one of the many anonymous phone calls, like, had given a few more details or... Like a name. Or, yeah, or even, like, that's the thing, though. Like, they were anonymous. Like, maybe they were also... Maybe they didn't know fuck all either and were just trying to get involved in something else. I mean, that that does happen. Um, It's happened quite a bit. Like, when they were trying to um capture the... um. Oh my god, that guy that looked like Cat Stevens who murdered a bunch of women in England in the 60s. Um, the Ripper, the um Oh, the Yorkshire Ripper. The Yorkshire Ripper. Someone made a false confession and sent yeah. it to the police. Um, and that fucked up the whole investigation for yeah. a while. Yeah, people just do weird shit in the vicinity of murder cases. But like, sending $500 that as is a goof? Yeah, interesting. I I mean, I think the the man that they matched the handwriting to is a very likely suspect, and I guess they mm-hmm. just didn't have enough evidence to, like, nail him as being... Yeah, you probably, especially in that time period, like, so far after the fact, like, you, you can't do anything to put him there. My best guess, and this is just going off of, I mean, I told you basically everything that I know, uh-huh. uh, is that he probably got wrapped up in um, boxing betting. Yeah. Um, like he either didn't throw a fight he was supposed to, he owed someone money and he was trying to get away from them, but they found him. Yeah. It does kind of feel very Peaky Blinders and like just in over your head in some sort of criminal. Yeah. And he probably didn't want to, you know, rat them out because, you know, he had a family Yeah, and they obviously knew where his family was. Mm -hmm. So, Mm. yep. (laughs) That's why 17 year olds shouldn't be allowed out. (laughs) Don't let teenagers make decisions. So that's my favorite unsolved mystery. Thank you for going on that journey with me. That was a lot of fun. You picked a good one. 
I it found it on a list. It was like a bustle list of like 10 of the creepiest unsolved <laughs> mysteries. Because I like up until this point, Lyle Stevick was my favorite. Because again, mm-hmm. like a bunch of weird details, but like technically that's been solved for that. Yeah, like the details get you because it feels like there should be enough there to, to figure like, it out. piece something together. And usually that's not the case, but like the t- it's yeah. This case I was get it. hurt by the fact that it was the 30s. Yeah. I also really like the story of that old man who died under an assumed name, but I think he was just an old man. Is this the guy? They did a thinking sideways on it. Is this the guy who, like, there was a lot of speculation. I can't remember his name. Jonathan Newton Chandler or something? Yes! Yeah, where, like, they thought maybe he was involved in crime. And, uh, yeah, I feel like especially when you, like, get a lot of those cases, it's usually, like, Someone has like some sort of undiagnosed mental illness and they have just kind of like pulled away from their family. Very paranoid. Yeah. Yeah. Those are fun. Fun is such a terrible word to describe mysteries that involve like deaths and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, they're fascinating. They're fun. They're just interesting to discuss and speculate on. Um, I do like it when they get solved, but most of the time it turns out to be so like mundane. You're like, well, yeah, Fuck. and honestly, like, 99% of the time, that's usually what it's going to be. But, oh, yeah. Like, but I assume Lyle Stevick was just a young man who didn't want to be here anymore. Yeah. Anyways, um, welcome back to the new season. Yay! There's a lot of weird stuff in store for you. Um, I look forward to all of the trolls that are inevitably going to come out of the woodwork. Going to have to be uh, very careful with those episode titles. Uh, do some reverse SEO, as we like to do. <laughs> some please leave me alone SEO. <laughs> How do we fly as under the radar? How do we get as few people to listen to our podcast as possible? <laughs> I want you to hear it, but I also don't want people to hear it. We want just our favorite listener, our fun already listeners to hear it. We like talking to you guys. Yeah. Uh, so thank you for buying merch in the interim. Um, it is very exciting to know that that's out there. If you have a picture of you in merch, I would love to see it. Yeah. So much. Mystery people who buy our merch. I can't even. Yeah. Um, and if you would like some Bottles of that merch, you can go to getafternoonified.com. You can also email us from there. You can listen to old episodes. You can donate if you want. We are also on Instagram at Afternoonified, where you'll find some pictures from this episode. Um, there may or may not be crime scene episodes. Uh, episodes. Pictures. Christ. We'll post a warning if there are. Yeah. We're also on Twitter at Afternoonified. Um, getafternoonified.com. Afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com if you want to email us thoughts. Tell us your favorite unsolved mystery. Ooh, yes. I love to hear them. And remember to rate, subscribe, review, all of that fun stuff. And we will see you next week in an episode that we have already recorded and it's going to be very obvious (laughs) (laughs) goodbye we love you do you love the bachelor franchise ah the romance the adventure the drama But do you also kind of hate the Bachelor franchise? Oh yeah. The sexism, the racism, the intense heteronormativity of it all. Here at Date Card, we're just two obsessed queerdos who love to dissect, talk shit, and get blocked by problematic contestants. Yeah, we're here for the good, the bad, and the chad of it all. You can find us on Soblo Media, iTunes, and Spotify. Please accept this rose!
For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is as above, so below.